When I was in college and grad school, I had a close friend we'll call Alex. I met him through a mutual friend, and he was in InterVarsity, the campus ministry I joined the second half or so of my first year of undergrad. Our friendship was complicated. I started out with romantic feelings for him, but long story short, things didn't work out that way. The friend zone is real for women too. But we ended up being good friends. We hang out a lot on and off, and we talk about pretty much everything. What I liked about him was that he was intelligent and really made me think. We would talk about stuff like politics and religion, and he would challenge me without being a pretentious jerk. Well, the 2000 presidential election was the first election I voted in. Yes, I'm old. Don't remind me. Bush v. Gore, hanging chads, all that good stuff. I've mentioned it elsewhere, I'm sure, but at the time, I was deep in evangelicalism, and most of my friends voted for George W. Bush. Alex was no exception. We were chatting about it around that time, and he said, of course I'm voting for Bush, because abortion. But I couldn't bring myself to vote for Bush, because even then, even though I was anti-abortion at that time, I had a hard time buying the concept that abortion was the only issue that mattered. Also, Republicans had been elected to office before, and abortion didn't end, so I didn't think it made sense for abortion to be the reason for pro-life Christians to vote for or against someone. So it was something that Alex and I disagreed on, but that was totally fine. Fast forward several years later, it was probably around 04 or so when I was in grad school. Alex was in school as well. We happened to live in the same area and we hung out a fair amount at that point. But things change in four or five years. Both of us had gone through some things. We saw life differently. Our worldviews were evolving, all that kind of stuff. Well, one day we're talking about the 2004 election. The one that was a bit less climactic than the last presidential cycle, a Bush enhanced by 9-11 in the presidency, but hampered a little bit by the war in Iraq, versus a very weak candidate in John Kerry. So Alex and I were talking one day, and we got on the subject of the election, and I asked him if he is voting for Bush again. His answer? No, I didn't vote for him the first time. What? When people are intensely connected to something, a belief system, a philosophy, or a person, like a demagogue, they often go through great lengths to maintain that connection, regardless of any doubts, any downsides, any cost. Information that runs counter to that can't be trusted. All contradictions must be set aside. Anything or anyone lost is seen as worth it for the greater good. Until those beliefs are shattered, and then it's as if that moment of devotion, or the things done in service to that devotion, never even happened. There is a segment of the Democratic Party focused on snagging a demographic who will never come. A demographic intensely connected to a demagogue. And if they keep that focus, they will lose in 2020. I have no idea if Alex was telling the truth when he said he voted for Bush in 2000, or when he said he didn't in 2004. But two things are generally true. People hate being exposed as wrong more than getting it right. 
and people love a winner. I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Pot Stirrer Podcast. The 2020 presidential election is about a year and a half away, and the Democratic Party primary field is currently crowded. There is no clear favorite or frontrunner that every Democrat is coalescing behind. This isn't 2016, when Hillary Clinton was far and away the favorite, but with a smaller but strong Bernie Sanders faction. This time, while the ideological split is similar, moderate versus progressive, there are a lot more candidates making up those two sides. And then there are candidates that want to sit on the fence. Kamala Harris comes to mind here, though I'm sure she's not the only one. Do I have my personal favorites? Sure. But I'm not going to name a specific candidate right now. Not because I'm trying to be cagey, but because there's a huge field that may change between now and the primaries. And to be honest, I don't think the candidate is the issue per se. I think that's somewhat secondary. What's more important is the direction the party will take for the 2020 election and beyond. Recently, former Vice President Joe Biden threw his hat into an already crowded ring for Democratic presidential nominee. This has caused a lot of controversy for a couple of reasons. As a moderate, his campaign has siphoned off momentum and funding from other moderate candidates. Also, in the age of hashtag MeToo, Biden's history with having issues with boundaries, his actions during the Clarence Thomas U.S. Supreme Court confirmation hearings in the early 90s, and a lack of direct apology to Thomas accuser Anita Hill have come into sharp focus as liabilities. But if we go deeper, Joe Biden's candidacy is further exposing the tension within the Democratic Party between old guard and new blood, third way versus Democratic socialists, establishment Democrats, and justice Democrats. I haven't been shy about my view that the rightward shift of the Democratic Party in the last quarter century, their moderate wing, the third way of Bill and Hillary Clinton, and other leaders like Nancy Pelosi, have led to the Democrats losing a lot of political power. I have also stated that the Democratic Party needs to better define itself as a real-life alternative to the GOP, adopting left-wing policy ideals that many Americans have shown they want, such as universal health care, subsidized or government-paid higher education, student loan forgiveness, clean drinking water, like getting around to fixing all the water pipes in Flint, robust food and drug regulations, consumer protections, raising the minimum wage, making weed legal on a federal level, so on and so forth. Until we no longer have a winner-take-all system of elections, until ranked choice voting becomes a thing, if you're looking for a third party to win or even to send a message to the other parties, you can forget that. There hasn't been a change in what parties constitute the major parties since 1860 when the Republican Party became one of the major parties, developing out of a split in the Whig Party and got Abraham Lincoln elected to the presidency. 
There have been strong third party showings on the national level in history with the Progressive Party and the Dixiecrats, for example. But besides electing a few people here and there to Congress and a smattering of state and local offices, third parties, if they build momentum, only play spoiler. Ralph Nader running for office a bunch of times in the last 20 years only helps Republicans, and the Democrats have responded by doubling down on their conservatism. So while I get the idea of shocking the system, this strategy is not working the way you think it should. Now, with that being said, the Democrats could go a couple of ways in 2020. I would call them the Buttigieg method and the AOC method. Pete Buttigieg is the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, and he is running for the presidency. He's new blood as a young man, only 37, a trailblazer as only the second gay candidate and the first in the Democratic Party who has run for president. He is former military, and as mayor of a Midwestern city, his policy decisions are center-right. Particularly, he's very much pro-business and pro-gentrification, though he has taken some progressive positions. But one of the things that Buttigieg has mentioned is the idea that we need to understand Trump voters. Quote, Donald Trump got elected because, in his twisted way, he pointed out the huge troubles in our economy and our democracy. At least he didn't go around saying that America was already great, like Hillary did. End quote. He also said this while campaigning in San Francisco. Quote, The other thing I've noticed is there are some folks I encounter here who seem to have trouble believing things like Trump voters actually exist. So I feel like I am sometimes an emissary from the middle of the country, just pointing out that things look a little different in rural communities, industrial communities like mine. I see a lot of well-heeled people, sometimes on the coasts, kind of shaking their heads and asking, how can you vote against your self-interests economically? Don't you know you are voting against your interests? And if you say that to somebody from that background where I come from, they simply can turn around and say, so are you. It can come off as a little condescending, end quote. Buttigieg has made these and several other statements, making it clear that his way forward during the presidential campaign is to appeal to Trump supporters. Then there's what I call the AOC method. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a freshman congresswoman from New York who has gotten a lot of press because of her democratic socialism, her social media presence, as well as her willingness to ask tough questions while on Capitol Hill. She has also received a lot of negative attention from Republican leaders and pundits. Ocasio-Cortez is considered far left in a political spectrum skewed to the extreme right, but fits within her district which consists of parts of the Bronx and Queens. She isn't currently running for president. She's a ways away from the minimum age of 35. But her congressional campaign is instructive for its approach to getting out the vote. AOC unseated longtime incumbent Joe Crowley, a moderate Democrat who thought so little of her that he sent a surrogate to their first debate. She unseated him by focusing on on engaging disaffected non-voters to vote for her. So in the 2020 election, 
Should Democrats use the Buttigieg method or the AOC method? Engage Trump supporters or non-voters? Here's something to consider. When taking independent voters who lean towards one of the major parties into account, the Democrats only have a five-point advantage, 47% to 42%. This is Democratic and Democratic leaners versus Republican or Republican leaners. And then Republicans are more likely to vote than Democrats, a mixture of demographic differences and voter suppression that disproportionately affects groups that are part of the Democratic base, such as younger people, people in poverty, and people of color. Add in the fact that due to the Electoral College, the voting power in the center of the country, which is less populated, is greater as a proportion of the population than the coasts. And that gives the Republicans an advantage. So on paper, it would make sense to use the Buttigieg method. Bring Trump supporters into the fold, siphon votes from the GOP, focus on economics, how in depressed rural areas that went for Trump in 2016, many of them haven't seen any benefit from a Trump presidency. Poll hasn't returned in West Virginia. And many middle-class Americans ended up paying more in taxes this year under Trump's tax plan. And how Democrats can do better in these and other areas, such as health care. If the Democrats can appeal to the economic anxiety of Trump supporters, you know where this is going. The problem with this is that the idea that Trump supporters supported him due to economic anxiety, this media-driven narrative that allows them to avoid digging deeper and helps Trump supporters and moderate Democrats alike feel better? This simply isn't true. According to a journal article written by political scientist Diane Mutz, economic anxiety or the feeling of being left behind economically, was found not to be a driver of Trump support. In a 1,200-respondent panel study, what was found to be a driver of Trump support, and a pretty significant one, is what Mutz called status threat. Status threat is defined as, quote, not the usual form of prejudice or stereotyping that involves looking down on outgroups who are perceived to be inferior. Instead, it is born of a sense that the outgroup is doing too well and thus is a viable threat to one's own dominant group status. End quote. This is even when taking into account other factors, including partisanship, which is the strongest predictor of vote choice. She also finds that, quote, Perceived discrimination against high-status groups does indeed have a substantial impact on the likelihood of supporting Trump. Largely, these same individuals who perceive whites as more discriminated against than minorities also see Christians and men as experiencing greater discrimination than Muslims and women, despite the former group's dominant status. End quote. Knowing that people of color are expected to outnumber whites in just a couple of decades, and seeing shades of that with the first president of African descent, this made a greater difference in Trump support than economic worries. Also, as I've said several times in other episodes, Donald Trump did not disguise his racism, xenophobia, and bigotry. He had it out front and center from the time he declared his candidacy, and even before, but who's counting? 
Donald Trump did not disguise what he was about, yet he gained almost 63 million votes. He got more than half the white vote and four-fifths of the white evangelical vote. They knew what it was, and even if they didn't when he ran for office, it's been two years down the rabbit hole of a presidency that is pretty much awful in just about every way, and in some aspects, downright evil. Despite this, or maybe because of it, he has lost few supporters, and it's unlikely he will ever dip below 25%. Trump supporters knew what it was, and with the benefit of time playing out, they know what it is yet they voted for him anyway and still support him. Bigotry was not a deal-breaker for them. That's not economic anxiety. Economic anxiety would lead you to vote for someone who hasn't viewed bankruptcy as a pastime. Bigotry leads you to vote for someone who talks like a bigot, acts like a bigot, and has done so for decades. And as much as Trump supporters don't want to hear it, They wouldn't hear it so much if they would take responsibility for their actions instead of blaming the left for calling it out. You know, that personal responsibility mantra many Republicans believe applies to other people but not themselves. On top of that, once most people have their minds made up, especially if there is an emotional tie to what they believe to be true, it's almost impossible to get them to change their minds. According to an article by Elizabeth Svoboda, resistance to changing one's mind in the presence of contradictory facts can come down to a few factors. First, changing your mind can come at a cost. Our beliefs and attitudes are not made in a vacuum. They're often shared in community, whether this community is your family, your friends, neighbors, work colleagues, church, or any other community you see yourself as part of. If you change your mind, you may find yourself at odds with your community. As social creatures, most humans want to feel accepted, and adopting a different viewpoint can feel like you're risking being ridiculed or even ostracized. Second, inertia can be at play. When you present it with new information that runs counter to your beliefs, you may feel a level of cognitive dissonance. It's simply easier mentally to dismiss the new information, then adopt the factual belief. In addition, doubt itself, wrestling with that cognitive dissonance, can lead people to be defensive of their views. According to a study conducted by researchers David Gall and Derek Rucker at Northwestern University, the less confident people felt about controversial issues, the more effort they exerted to convince other people of their position. This effect was further amplified if they felt their identity was threatened, the belief in question was important to them, and if they believed others would listen. Being defensive is a way to repel uncomfortable beliefs that you might not feel ready to deal with. It's like how many evangelical Christians look at doubt as particularly bad. Denying or rebuking that doubt to the point of condemning fellow Christians who acknowledge they have doubts, and living by faith is preferable to confronting and wrestling with the possibility that they may not have all the answers. The Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez method, the AOC method, instead of tapping into the group of people who have decided to go all in for Trump, 
which would be like getting blood from a stone, this would consist of focusing on the millions of voters who didn't vote at all and are otherwise unlikely to vote. 59.7% of eligible voters voted in the U.S. presidential election in 2016, which meant that 40% of eligible voters did not vote. That is a higher number than either Clinton or Trump voters. Of course, voter suppression is part of the reason some in that category didn't vote, and we need to address that sooner rather than later. This should be a top priority for Democrats on the state and national levels. But that isn't the only reason. Apathy, disillusionment with the system, those kinds of feelings make a difference too. More effort needs to be made on non-voters to get them engaged. And on this, having a well-defined platform that makes it clear what the candidates are for will make a huge difference. These should be common sense reforms that will catch us up to the rest of the West, such as nationalized health care, student loan forgiveness, tuition-free public college, also other progressive reforms such as ending the drug war, focusing on treatment for people devastated by drug addiction, and federal-level weed legalization, full civil rights and protections for marginalized people, and proper execution of international laws regulating asylum. No more separating families or caging children. And if we can make a proper argument for it, a universal basic income. And there could be a lot more added to the platform as well. AOC passed out a flyer during her campaign that clearly outlined her positions on various issues. This is extremely important. Trump being terrible is already known, and yet some people who could have voted chose not to. It's not enough to say, vote against Trump. Democrats, talk about what you're for, not simply what you're against. And make sure it's a heck of a lot different than what the Trump and the GOP have to offer, because third-way, conservative-light politics helped get us Trump. We don't need to peel off all non-voters, just some, just some, especially in key states, will make all the difference, especially since partisanship margins, Democrats and Republicans, are so close. This all comes down to turnout. Now, the primaries are the perfect time for the Democratic Party to carefully vet candidates and figure out what direction to go in and who Democratic voters and superdelegates decide to go with as a nominee will likely determine which strategy will be used to secure a victory for the challenger and defeat for dear leader. Democrats, do not waste this opportunity. Fact is, if Trump supporters aren't walking away at this point, there is no reason for them to start now. The idea that Trump supporters need understanding is steaming hot garbage. Stop obsessing over Trump supporters. Stop chasing the white whale. Trump supporters don't need to be understood. They need to be defeated. I've been advocating in a lot of places both in real-life conversations and in social media, for honest critique of presidential candidates. We are less than a year away from the start of primary season, with several choices to speak of, with different backgrounds and views, different strengths and weaknesses, 
What I don't want to see is a premature coronation or a repeat of 2016 with an establishment candidate that stifles the voices of a sizable faction of the party. And what I really don't want to see is a focus on who is more likely to beat Trump. But Jay, we gotta beat Trump! We can't just get some left-wing progressive that Trump is going to rip to shreds! We need to stop worrying about what Trump will say about any of the candidates, because Trump will say anything about anyone with or without inspiration, with or without provocation. He's just that nasty. If the party's strategy for the primaries centers Donald Trump and Republican voters instead of the Democratic Party, particularly the base of the party, Democrats lose before they even get started. Democrats and independents would do well to vote for the Democratic nominee against Donald Trump, since Trump is so horrible for human rights and democracy that it's imperative he gets booted out of office first. That said, approaching the primaries without actually vetting candidates is a wasted opportunity. Democrats should decide who best represents the party and whose proposed policies are most preferable. Most preferable meaning most preferable to Democrats, not to Trump supporters, not to closet Trump supporters. Bernie or bust folks and never Bernie folks, I see you. If Trump is even a possibility for your vote, I'm looking at you sideways. But deciding on a Democratic nominee based on if they could possibly be moderate enough to siphon off Trump supporters is a mistake. A big, fat mistake. If this happens, if they follow this unrelenting media obsession with this narrative of the disaffected conservative white man from Main Street, USA, who represents the real America, and to be honest, I fear they will, the Democrats will lose in 2020. You lose. Game over. While Trump is still in power, Trump supporters will continue to support him. Probably the only true thing Trump has ever said is this. The people, my people are so smart. And you know what else they say about my people? The polls. They say, I have the most loyal people. Did you ever see that? Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's like incredible. (laughs) The only thing that will get the vast majority of Trump supporters to stop supporting him is if he's out of power. And when I say this, I mean out of power by losing. If he completes his eight years, or longer, and rides off into the sunset, he's a legend. If, God forbid, he dies in office, he dies a hero. Trump has to actually lose. Whether it's him losing in 2020, or him getting impeached and removed from office, or some other method that involves him losing power and leaving in disgrace. He has to lose. And this bears out historically. The run-up to World War II, which lasted from 1939 through 1945, took over a decade prior to the war, and this consisted of the rise of the National Socialist German Workers' Party, or the Nazi Party. There were a number of reasons why many Germans embraced the Nazis. The most common reasons included the feeling of national failure over losing the First World War and the economic pain caused by the Great Depression. These conditions were magnified for Germany 
Due to the aftermath of losing one of the deadliest wars in world history up until that time, both in lives lost and property damage, and the Treaty of Versailles, which required Germany to pay the equivalent of $33 billion, or close to half a trillion dollars in today's money. But Adolf Hitler and the Nazis weren't always so universally embraced. When Hitler was early in his chancellorship in 1934, there was still a diversity of opinion regarding Der Fuhrer. That year, a referendum was held to solidify his support by giving his position at least the appearance of legitimacy. In that referendum, even though there were documented voting irregularities, over a sixth of voters did not vote for him, and in some large working-class areas of Germany, up to a third of voters voted against him. That's even with the Nazis rigging the referendum. But the Nazis gained military victories in the Rhineland, which was an area contested between Germany and France, as well as Austria and the Sudetenland, an area of what is now the Czech Republic, then Czechoslovakia, with a sizable ethnic German population. And those wins helped coalesce the German population to the Nazi cause. But as we all know, while Germany started very strong during the war, they lost that Second World War. Adolf Hitler killed himself in a bunker, and many Nazi leaders who survived the war didn't survive the Nuremberg trials. Those who made their way out of Europe to places like Argentina and the U.S. weren't exactly advertising that they were Nazis. Even the positive mention of Nazis was outlawed in Germany. And the German people who embraced Hitler and the Nazi party? Well, they didn't disappear. But after all the loss of life, humiliation, and property damage from the Second World War, then on top of that, being split in half into West Germany and East Germany, and seeing their leaders die in dishonor, and others slink away in hiding, it's like, what? We supported the Nazis? Huh? Now, before you start going, oh, you're comparing Trump to Hitler. I am not calling Trump a Nazi or Hitler here, but I am using this example because it mattered how Hitler and the Nazis lost power. They didn't cede it peacefully and ride into the sunset. They lost. They lost unequivocally. And not only they lost, the victors did not coddle their feelings or let them pretend they won. Now, let's look at an example where that isn't the case. The American Civil War lasted from 1861 through 1865. The South lost the war, and they were absorbed back into the Union. So on paper, they lost. But those Southern elites who instigated the war were never sufficiently punished for leaving the Union and taking up arms against it. They didn't get anything like the Nuremberg trials. As a matter of fact, the president during the first part of Reconstruction, Andrew Johnson, was a Confederate sympathizer. Johnson ended up pardoning all Confederate leaders, including CSA President Jefferson Davis, on Christmas Day in 1868, not long before leaving office. And many of these same men who engineered secession were back in power by the time Reconstruction ended in 1877. So they lost, but they didn't, because the North essentially gave them a soft landing, 
and pretty much left them to their own devices after 12 years. See ya, have a good one. This led to the South rewriting history, known as Lost Cause Mythology. Lost Cause Mythology is this idea that Southern society prior to the Civil War was idyllic, with genteel, strapping white men and delicate, calmly white women living on glorious, fruitful plantations with happy, content black slaves who knew their place. The North looked to destroy all that by changing the South's way of life, which led to the War of Northern Aggression, the Southern Confederate term for the Civil War. The South fought valiantly, but were crushed, but not for lack of extreme effort. They were martyrs, they were heroes, and the South shall rise again. To that end, around the 19-teens and 1920s, statues commemorating Confederate war heroes, soldiers, and other memorials honoring the Confederate side were built all around the country, not just in the South. Institutions such as schools and military bases, as well as localities, were named after Confederate leaders. As of today, 38 states have some type of Confederate monument or memorial. 36 states have them on public lands. These were not memorials to preserve history. These weren't built during the Civil War or during Reconstruction. These were built several decades later, during the height of Jim Crow, during a time when lynching and other forms of intimidation against black Americans was on the rise and Ku Klux Klan membership was at its height of four million strong. These Confederate memorials served two purposes. To promote the Lost Cause narrative and to intimidate black Americans. And let me remind you, most of these memorials and monuments are on public land. Statues in parks, military bases named after guys like Robert E. Lee, public school districts, and counties named after Jefferson Davis. The U.S. government embraces traitors who, last I checked, lost the freaking war. It's as if the South never lost. According to research by H.E. Gully, as well as the work of Cynthia Mills and Pamela Simpson, these monuments were commissioned primarily by white women who embraced lost cause mythology. These women tended to operate in advocacy groups such as the United Daughters of the Confederacy, promoting the building of these monuments all over the country. You wonder about the majority of white women who voted for Trump in 2016? The idea that white women can embrace white supremacy, despite its ties to the patriarchy, shouldn't be lost on anyone. And even though monuments have been taken down, this has not been without controversy. For example, the Charlottesville rally that led to the terror attack that killed Heather Heyer and the hate crime beating of DeAndre Harris was originally intended as an event to preserve a Confederate monument. And not only did Confederate monuments get built, and many still remain, but people embraced the Confederate flag as a symbol of heritage. Heritage according to Lost Cause mythology. So, based on a lie. Now, the fact is, there were several Confederate flags, some were ceremonial, others were flags that were brought into battle for commanders to find where the troops were engaged. The flag we know as a Confederate flag was originally the battle flag of the Army of Northern Virginia. Nevertheless, there are many people who embrace the Confederate flag, and not all of them live in the South. Despite 
much of the South taking heavy losses and damage from the Civil War, the Confederate leaders were spared many of the repercussions from the war. Unlike the aftermath of World War II, the end of the Civil War involved the North attempting to reconcile with the South, rather than make them pay for what they had done. There was no long-lasting humiliation, no concrete reminder that, hey, you lost. In coddling the South, the North enabled the South to rewrite history, which empowered those who embraced what the antebellum South truly stood for, chattel slavery and a racial caste system, and created subsequent generations of Confederate sympathizers who want to pretend that the Southern cause was anything other than an act of treason based on the defense of slavery. The love of the Confederacy that persists in this country over a century and a half later is because they never truly lost. Now, that's not to say that right-wing Nazi sympathizing groups haven't made a comeback in Germany in recent years, because they have. Right-wing Nazi sympathizing groups have been on the rise in a lot of Western countries. But there was never such a resurgence at any point since World War II ended to where there were ever statues glorifying Hitler or Goebbels or Himmler in Germany. No plaques in German parks dedicated to Rudolf Hess. No schools named after Joseph Mengele. No Bundeslander or states named Göring. And the Nazi flag isn't a staple on BMWs or Volkswagens tooling around Deutschland. Most Germans would rather forget that chapter in their history than pretend their ancestors were heroes. That's because, unlike the American South, the Germans, including their dear leader, decisively lost. And they weren't let off the hook for it. For Colt 45 to be nothing but a bad memory? Trump has to actually lose. For real. For real, guys. If Trump becomes a loser, I can pretty much guarantee that your Uncle Bob with his faded MAGA hat will act like his fanatical Trump phase never happened. Your Aunt Karen, who shared Facebook memes about how Trump was appointed by God to defend Christianity, will say, Trump who? At the end of the day, Donald Trump is successful because people love a winner, especially a winner that tells them their worst impulses are good, all the problems of the world are caused by someone else, and that he alone can fix it through his force of will. I alone can fix it. That is dangerous, and those who embrace demagogues like Trump cannot be reasoned with. There aren't enough facts in the world that will change them. What will is seeing their dear leader ultimately fail, to see him dethroned by losing. The Democrats need to stop worrying about going after Trump supporters and embrace the groups they have a better chance with, their own base and non-voters. Stop wasting your time. 2020 and the country's future depends on it. One of the happenings that has been rankling Trump supporters lately is the deplatforming of controversial voices from the airwaves, especially guys like Alex Jones and Milo Yiannopoulos. At some point, it would be interesting to explore this phenomenon of deplatforming further, maybe in a future episode? Tell me what you think. And while we're on the subject of Alex Jones, Nick and John discuss one of his conspiracy theories in the latest from Stranger Still. In particular, 
they look into the idea of cell phone towers scrambling our brains. How dangerous are cell phone towers to humans, especially with the advent of 5G technology? It's a great episode as always, so definitely check it out. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher, or go to strangerstillshow.com. And for all the awesome shows on Flying Machine and the wonderful blogs our talented artists are writing, check out flyingmachine.network. Thank you so much for listening to Potstirer Podcast. Did you like this episode? If so, there are so many more. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. Go to potstirerpodcast.com slash download and direct links are there. Subscribing is free and easy and you get new episodes once they drop so you don't have to wait. I want to hear from you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us five stars and leave a review and reach out on Twitter at PotstirerCast to share your thoughts on the show. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free. I give you the incredible flying machine.